Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Our speaker this evening is a Catholic priest in the Jesuit order and is president of the Magia Center of Reason and Faith, the Spitzer Center, and the Napa Institute. Father Robert Spitzer earned his Master of Arts in Philosophy from St. Louis University, Master of Divinity from Gregorian University, Master of Theology from Weston School, and his PhD from the Catholic University of America. Author of 10 books, producer of nine television series for EWTN, and founder of six major national institutions, Father Spitzer has made multiple major media appearances, including Larry King Live, The Today Show, The History Channel, and PBS. His academic specialties are the philosophy of science, particularly space-time theory, and transcendent implications of contemporary Big Bang cosmology, metaphysics, particularly the theory of time and philosophy of God, and organizational ethics in its relationship to personal and cultural transformation. And it is such an honor to welcome back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Father Robert Spitzer. Welcome back, Father. Thanks so much, Kelsey. I appreciate it. And let us begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your blessings to us, the blessing of this ministry, the ability to get the word out to so many people. We ask you this evening to send your Holy Spirit down upon us so that we might correctly see what is going on in this cosmic struggle between good and evil in which we are perforce involved. We ask you, Lord, to help us to understand how your spirit is moving us, how the evil spirit attempts to move us, and how we might best protect ourselves from him and enter into that uh, spiritual warfare uh, that um, whether we uh, choose to enter into it or not is all around us uh, that we can so very much help if we decide to become involved. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, tonight's talk will be on my book called uh, Christ versus Satan uh, in our daily lives. And so it's obviously about this uh, cosmic struggle between good and evil. And I thought we might start with St. Paul's passage in the letter to the Ephesians, um, which gives uh, a little bit of a, a summary of what we're involved in. And Kelsey's going to read it. All right. So this is from the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 12 to 18. 
For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace. Besides all these, taking the shield of faith, with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Wonderful. Thank you very much. So that's uh, what we face. And so um, this is going to be part one of a two-part uh, video series um, that will concern this book. And so I'm going to try and finish all of part one tonight. Don't worry. If I don't get to the end, um, then I'm going to finish it up uh, when I come back to you, I think, in two weeks. So um, stay tuned. Let me just get to the first uh, part, which is the first slide, which is really important here, that the Lord is present. The Lord is the one who is in charge. Of course, Jesus calls the devil the prince of this world, but that was before his passion and resurrection that we'll talk about um, in just a moment. But the main thing uh, now is uh, we don't have anything to worry about. If we're leading good lives, we don't have to worry what the, the, the evil spirit um, you know, could do, like oppress us or possess us or something of that nature. Of course, we always have to worry about sinfulness. We always have to worry about uh, what I call the eight deadly sins, because I separate off vanity from pride. Uh, we always have to worry about whether we're resisting temptation adequately, appropriating virtue. These are all ways of defending ourselves uh, against Satan. Nevertheless, the Lord is in charge. The Lord's power is definitive. The name of Jesus, as we shall talk about later, is very powerful uh, over Satan. And of course, the sacrament of reconciliation and the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist are the devil's worst enemies. The church is our you know, solid foundation and protection through the sacraments, through the word of God, through the magisterial teaching. And, and so, uh, again, we don't have to worry. Uh, the Lord is there. So first and foremost, as you can see, the church, uh, first and foremost, is that solid rock. We depend on the church for so many different things. If we didn't have the church run, I know this, if I didn't have the church run, if I, if my mother had not gotten me into the uh, into mass and serving mass and catechism class and a variety of other things, um, you know, and she was herself a daily communicant. Uh, I mean, where would I be today? Way down the path of perdition, I am sure. Uh, for uh, as they say, the evil spirit, without you know having all of that teaching, all those sacraments. I mean, I can just almost be assured that uh, I, I would be a, a wholly different person. And it frankly scares me to death uh, to think about where I could be. So um, uh, the second area to, to know is the Holy Spirit is constantly active in our lives. And throughout the course of this uh, first uh, uh, lecture, I'm going to be talking about that. So I'm going to be talking about rules for the discernment of spirits. 
How do we know when the Holy Spirit's there? How do we know when the evil spirit uh, is doing the talking as it were? So there's some rules we can implement uh, to learn about that. But the main thing first is, oh, the Holy Spirit is there with three major gifts. The first one is the Holy Spirit guides. Sometimes he guides through consolation and desolation. I'll talk about that in a moment, but right, you, you get these feelings of consolation, and then there are there's what we call true consolation, where a person really is in unity uh, with the will of God, and you combine those feelings of consolation with being in concert with the will of God, uh, what we call spiritual consolation, and uh, boy, the, the Holy Spirit can definitely guide us with those consolations and desolations. He can show us where to go and where not to go. Uh, by a mere movement uh, of, of our feelings, by a mere movement of our will. And there's certain kinds of feelings like emptiness, alienation, loneliness that are a key point that tell us when we're moving in the wrong direction. There are other kinds of feelings uh, that are uh, filled with a, a hope and, and a security and a peace that, you know, as Paul would call it, that's beyond all understanding. So that's one way. But the Holy Spirit also guides us. Uh, through a little com conspiracies of divine providence. So, uh, for example, the Holy Spirit can sort of block something. I remember when I was trying to, you know, you know, considering law schools and where to go, uh, you know, after, uh, you know, I was, um, um, you know, finished with college. And, and so, of course, uh, some of the places I thought about were, uh, you know, uh, Notre Dame Law School, uh, you know, Georgetown Law School, Harvard Law School, where my dad went, so forth and so on. And I thought, Harvard, why not? You know, but all I could tell you is, you know, every time I tried to do something to, to move in that direction, it seemed like my path was blocked. And the path to, to Notre Dame or to Georgetown seemed open. You know, everything seemed just fine. But even more strangely, it's like even the path to law school, even though, um, you know, I, I, you know, the path was open, wasn't blocked for me to go to law school. I mean, I did I get accepted to law schools that were very good indeed. But that, you know, through consolations and desolations, you know, I, I kind of knew this wasn't it. This wasn't the path I was supposed to take. And I'll talk a little bit about that uh, more uh, later on. But I, I did sense that, you know, that sense of desolation or kind of an emptiness, that this is not it for me. And then when I thought about my vocation, my priestly vocation in particular, the fact that my religion was central to my life, which I knew to be the case, the most central thing by far to my life. And I felt that consolation, especially consolation when I happened to come across a little pamphlet right on, uh, on the priesthood as I was walking out of St. Aloysius Church one day after Mass. I just uh, caught it and boom, you put these things together, the consolations, the desolations, you put together the, you know, the little conspiracies of divine providence that block the way or open the way. And sometimes the way gets open so widely that, you know, the Holy Spirit's practically pushing you through uh, with both consolation and with opportunity. And so uh, these are, you know, the Holy Spirit's there. He's guiding us. We're not alone. And frankly, the Holy Spirit protects us, certainly protected me in, in many, many different ways. And it's not just the Holy Spirit who protects us, but though the Holy Spirit's right at the top of the list. But of course, we've got St. Michael the Archangel and, and so forth. So if we go down to that third thing there, 
um, you've got a whole area in which Christ, um, uh, you know, gives us these, you know, legions of wonderful uh, saints and angels, and above all, the Blessed Virgin Mary, who really does help us. Now, of course, uh, in a one-hour and 15-minute lecture, I'm not going to be able to get to all of this in any significant way. But, you know, there all, all these gifts are there, and I've written about them uh, in much more explicit ways in Christ versus Satan in our daily lives, chapter one. Um, I also give a little description in that chapter of Christ, Christian mysticism, uh, which is a, a very different from uh, the mysticism of other religions, because, of course, the Christian mystic uh, has love as central uh, to it. Not, I mean, joy and ecstasy are there, but oh, it, it is love that is integrated uh, into the sacredness that we sense, the peace that we sense, the serenity and, and, and security in the future that we sense, right? There's, there's a centrality of love in, in the mystic's life uh, that is uh, quite uh, uh, relational. Um, it's not just a receptivity, but it's a, a dialogical uh, mysticism. And furthermore, the Christian mystic always goes back into the world. They don't remain in the clouds, go to the monastery and stay uh, the Christian mystic uh, is always going back, always uh, trying to bring souls uh, back to the Lord. Everything about Christian mysticism is dialogical, it's relational, it's oriented towards love, it's oriented towards service. Uh, these are the things that John, St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, my two favorites uh, in the mystical tradition, talk about uh, hugely. Okay, so uh, that's the first thing. We're not alone. Uh, we're not combating Satan all by ourselves. We've got the church, we've got the Holy Spirit, we've got the angels and the saints, the Blessed Virgin Mary. We've got even Christ directly entering into our hearts through uh, what might be called the initiation of the Christian mystical uh, life um, within us. Okay, let's go to the second uh, area here. Uh, again, this is, uh, you know, before we can talk about the reality of Satan, we have to talk about the reality of Christ's defeat of Satan. So this is a, an important uh, point. And, and uh, you know, what was Christ all about? You know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, uh, uh, Jesus really didn't believe in the evil spirit. Are you kidding me? If you read, if you have anything to do, if you ever took five minutes to read any one of the Gospels, it is very clear that Jesus not only believes in the evil spirit, Jesus is combating the evil spirit, and the central mission of Jesus, besides bringing the kingdom of God and forming and starting the church, is to defeat Satan, which is integral to both of the other two things. Bringing the kingdom of God, he's going to defeat Satan. He's a he's prince of this world, and Jesus is going to take over as the king. And so that's the first thing. And uh, the, the second thing is the reason for the church is to perpetuate the ministry of defeating Satan after Jesus has left and given us his Holy Spirit through the church. So uh, no question about it. Jesus definitely not only believed in Satan, he had the uh, mission um, uh, of defeating Satan as a primary uh, element uh, in um, coming, becoming incarnate and entering into our lives. Okay, so what was his five-step plan? So Jesus had a five-step plan to defeat Satan, and the first uh, part of that plan is to go out 
into the desert. So these temptations uh, in the desert. And when he goes out, uh, when Jesus goes out into the desert, um, it's uh, kind of a remarkable, uh, um, you know, vulnerability that he opens himself up to. Um, and so he's fasting for uh, 40 days. And of course, uh, the devil waits until Jesus is most weak, most vulnerable, etc. And then he comes in and he tempts Jesus with seemingly a very banal thing, right? He, he tempts first with saying, oh, you must be hungry. Well, if you're the son of God, that's the real temptation. If you're the son of God, that's the temptation toward pride. Then you could change these stones into loaves. Then you could both satisfy your hunger and you could show me who you really are. You're the guy. You're the boss. But Jesus chooses not to do that. He chooses not to have to prove himself by his having divine power within him, which, by the way, Jesus very well knew he had. But instead, Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm basically going to remain humble and remain obedient to my Father's will. Therein lies Jesus' whole uh, you know, defeat of Satan. What Satan wants Jesus to do is not to do something that's overtly sinful. Turning stones into bread is not overtly sinful. What it is, though, is it's not doing it God his Father's way. It's doing his mission his way, putting his way above his Father's. He's trying to get Jesus to disobey the, the, the you know, the, the Father's um, mission that he has given him. And Jesus, of course, does not fall for this. So the devil comes, you know, a second time, depends on whether you read Matthew or Luke here, but let's uh, say the second thing, of course, is worldly power. And, uh, of course, Satan says, hey, you know, I have in my possession all of these kingdoms and all this power, and look at all these, you know, minions of people out there I have following me. Hey, if you want them, I mean, you're here to save all these people. If you want all these kingdoms, if you even want to be the ruler, you want to displace me, why just, you know, kneel before me and don't worry, I'll, uh, um, you know, I'll, uh, I'll take care of everything. Uh, for you. And of course, Jesus is, you know, be completely a horrible thing for him to turn his back on his heavenly father, which he would never do, of course. But um, uh, the, the evil spirit's going to try. And, and finally, of course, he comes with a spiritual pride. Okay, here you are. You're at the top of this, the parapet of the temple. Just throw your da yourself down from here. And here it comes again. If you're the son of God, why, you could throw yourself down from here, and your heavenly Father's going to send angels to, to protect you. No problem. Uh, I mean, prove it. You know, you, you, know, you, you can uh, do it your way. Uh, you're, you're a grown-up boy. And um, Jesus, of course, remains humble. He remains obedient. He remains totally loyal to his Father. He never transforms 
is gaze for a single second. What happens? Basically, what happens is Satan, round one, is so thoroughgoingly defeated that um, uh, uh, that he is now subject to Jesus, and his minions are now subject to Jesus. And as we shall see, even he and his minions are subject to the name of Jesus. And this is going to become very important. So Jesus wins the first round, and that will initiate the second step, which is uh, uh, Jesus' uh, prolific ministry of exorcisms. So once you know the, the minions are there, notice that Jesus does not exorcise a demon like any other Old Testament prophet. Remember that the Old Testament prophets, and sometimes if you're looking at other religions, right, the priests of other religions who also exercise demons in some ways or another, are always making recourse to God. They are praying or using incantations, trying to channel the divine power, not Jesus. Jesus has the divine power to exorcise. Jesus has the divine power the divine power to cast out Satan within himself. So you notice when Jesus comes up to the first uh, person there, right? Usually he comes out from the desert. He goes to the synagogue in Capernaum. And what does he notice? Of course, there's a, um, a fellow there who's possessed by an evil spirit. And that possessed man cries out, what do you want from us, Jesus of Nazareth? What, what are you going to do to us? And Jesus just says, get out of the man. No incantations, no prayers, no address to the Father to give him power or to help him out. Jesus is the power to rid the world of Satan in himself. He has the divine power within himself. He can exercise by his own name, by his own authority, by his own power, a proof not only that he is the son of God, but also he's got the power to completely displace Satan within uh, uh, th uh, through, him, through his own authority. So uh, having said all of this, what does Jesus do? I mean, he is going around, he's performing so many exorcisms as he goes around that the one thing the Pharisees can't deny is that Jesus as a completely prolific, successful ministry of exorcism. So now, how do we know this? How can we be so sure historically? Because they make that silly accusation that it is by the power of Beelzebul that he casts out demons, the prince of demons casting out his own minions. This uh, rationale is so lame that Jesus just easily picks it apart. But why do they make recourse to such a self-contradictory sort of lame rationale that Jesus is using the power of the devil to cast out the devil? Because it's very apparent that he's casting out the devil. Everybody knows it. The Pharisees can't say, oh, he's not casting out the devil because like thousands upon thousands of people are witnessing this all over Galilee and in the territory between Galilee and Jerusalem, and then throughout the uh, territory of Jerusalem. It's undeniable he is succeeding in these exorcisms. And that's why, of course, they make a ridiculous accusation that Jesus can just simply rid himself of by pointing out the contradiction 
and then rubbing it in. So there is the second phase. And with each exorcism, the devil is weakened. Within each exorcism, the devil loses a little piece of his kingdom. But that leads to the third part of the plan. In the third part of the plan, Jesus knows that, you know, right, uh, even after his passion, death, and resurrection, he knows that he has to found a church. He, ha- he knows that he is going to leave. He's going to give his Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is going to be administered through the church. And so he begins what's called church founding activities. But the first, of course, are the apostles. And uh, as we'll see later, that you know, Peter is selected as the first among those apostles, but the apostles are the first ones that Jesus sends out on a missionary mission. But remember, those missionary um, uh, missions that, that uh, Jesus is sending them out on, uh, they are uh, um, uh, church founding uh, um, items as well. So Jesus is imparting on them the powers of the church. He's giving them first the power to heal and then the power to exercise. But later, he's going to give them additional powers with respect to church leadership. He's going to give them the powers of the sacrament, especially reconciliation. And, of course, the Holy Eucharist, the Last Supper, all of these things, the power to baptize. All of these things are going to be given by him and to form the church. But the power to exercise is right there. And, of course, the apostles come back. And what do they say? Wow, even the devil, even the the, the, the evil spirits, you know, can be mastered by us in your name. And that is very important to see. In your name, the, 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 the evil spirits are mastered. And, and so Jesus, oh, don't be so, um, you know, think of yourself too highly because of this. Rather, count yourselves blessed because your names are in the book of the kingdom of God. Now, then in Luke's gospel, as we see, he not only gives the apostles his power, but in a further 72. So Jesus is forming yet another rung. So you can see there's already a hierarchical church. Peter on the top, the apostle, the 11 uh, remaining apostles is the next rung. Third rung is the 72, right? Uh, you know, apostles yet, uh, we'll call them disciples uh, that are, are there. And they are also given the power to exercise. And they are also successful uh, in their exorcisms. And now said, okay, then he goes to the fourth step which is, you know, many teachings on Satan. I think I'm going to be talking about as many teachings, uh, you know, throughout the course of my talk. But as you know, Jesus says right out, he's a murderer and a liar from the very beginning. And of course, he gives us a lot of instruction through the parables on the tactics that Satan uses, right? How he plants weeds among the um, the uh, um, uh, the good uh, good crops and the wheat. And then, of course, he's also doing a variety of other things, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, he's snatching the seed away uh, when it uh, falls to the ground. He's also uh, choking things and so forth and so on. He's So we see that Jesus has a variety of different ways of talking about Satan, how do evil spirits work, right? They travel, you know, uh, out of a person. Then, uh, you know, the person gets everything all cleaned up. And the spirit, of course, roaming around there decides, hey, I'm lonely. I need a place to go back. I'm going to call a bunch of my friends here, and I'm going to go right back to that same guy who's got the, his whole act cleaned up, and I'm really going to occupy him with uh, a bunch of other spirits more evil than myself. And you look at that and you go, what's that all about? Be vigilant, 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 vigilant. 
we're never finished with that spiritual combat. We're never finished with this cosmic struggle between good and evil. Vigilance, perseverance is so important, being on the lookout, being on the lookout, etc. So we'll talk about this uh, momentarily, but Jesus has many teachings. That's the fourth part of his plan. The fifth part of his plan is really definitive, right? This is Jesus's passion and death. Now, the irony of Jesus's passion and death relative to, of course, of uh, uh, Satan, who at the beginning, right, as we go into the, you know, into the um, uh, passion narratives in, in the Gospels, the ver- it's very apparent that, you know, Satan is active with Judas, right? He's got Judas going uh, and getting him all set to betray him. Uh, you know, even the gospel writers saying Satan entered his heart. And John adds, and it was night when uh, Judas goes out there uh, to turn him over. So the idea that Satan is trying to get Judas to, to betray him, also getting the chief priests uh, definitely um, worked up and then using the, the chief priests to get the crowds worked up to make sure that Jesus is persecuted. Does Jesus know that all of this is going on? Of course, Jesus knows that all of this is going on, but he has a part of the plan, which Satan just can't possibly understand. So what's Jesus's plan? Jesus's plan is to take this act, right? He knows Jesus will betray him with a kiss. He knows that he's going, uh, you know, to, to uh, uh, be uh, crucified in this horrible, ignominious and insulting way. He knows all of these things, but he's got the Holy Eucharist planned in his mind. And he's got the idea that comes out in Psalm 22, right? Remember, Psalm 22 is not a psalm of despair. It is not a psalm of uh, forsakenness. It's exactly the opposite. Yes, it starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, of course, is saying this psalm on the cross. In Aramaic, the way his mother uh, taught him the psalm when he was a little kid. It's a special Northern Galilean um, um, uh, uh, pronunciation, right? Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, right? Um, that uh, Northern Galilean um, uh, Aramaic. He's doing it like he would have said that psalm when he was a little kid. Now, the whole point is, though, look at that psalm. That psalm is telling you what Jesus is doing. So the first thing, of course, is we notice it's, yes, it starts off with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then, of course, it changes right away into a psalm of hope, into a psalm of vindication. The, the, um, the just servant, right, the person who is the innocent man who's being persecuted, God is going to vindicate him and vindicate him through the suffering that he has to go through. And the person who's there, you know, Jesus is saying the whole psalm. Yes, only the first line of the psalm is there, but the first line of the psalm, remember, in Jewish culture, that refers to the whole psalm. So Jesus is actually saying this psalm on the cross, and he's saying that he trusts in God. He knows that he'll be vindicated. Then the psalm shifts to an uh, an uncanny kind of description of a man going through the very similar kinds of things that Jesus is going through on the cross. But this psalm was written at least 600 years before Jesus' crucifixion. And there it is. All of these things are kind of being prophetically recounted by the, by the psalmist. But Jesus is now saying them in real time. And then finally, of course, the third part of the psalm where Jesus reveals what it's all about. 
And here he comes along and he says, I'm doing this, and I'm just going to interpret here, to create an unconditional act of love. This unconditional act of love, this complete, there is no greater love that a man can have than to give his life for his friends. There it is. This is all about an unconditional act of love. And what is the purpose of this unconditional act of love? The purpose is so that everyone in the Jewish community be safe, but also the Popolo, also the, the people of the sea, also the, the, uh, uh, the, the Gentile peoples. And in addition to that, not just the people of the present moment, but all the people into, in the past that have gone into the domain of Sheol, that's called the dust, right? Gone to the dust, but that means the, the, the land of the shadows, the land of the dead, uh, uh, Sheol, where people are awaiting, as it were, Jesus to come and liberate them. Uh, we call it uh, hell uh, sometimes because the word used there to translate Sheol is Hades, but in point of fact, Sheol wasn't Hades in the sense of our hell. It really means the domain of the dead, um, those awaiting uh, judgment. So then also it says, right, that this is for all the people in the future. So it's not just that, but all nations are going to come uh, to him. And not just all nations, but all peoples and all nations will be coming to him. And then the psalmist is like, you know, saying even things like, let your hearts be merry. You know, let your hearts be merry. What's there so much to be merry about? And then, of course, finally, he has done it. Now, just think of the old uh, Satan out there. He has been working overtime to get Jesus crucified, to get him humiliated, to get him suffering. That's what he's really wanted. But all of a sudden, as Jesus is saying this song, you can almost hear, uh-oh, Satan is thinking, there's something more to this that I have missed. What did I miss? That Jesus' self-sacrificial act will be an infinite act of love. That infinite act of love, as we shall see in a moment, is going to be the core from which, um, uh, you know, every, you know, absolution of every priest and the sacrament of reconciliation is going to call upon that love to redeem us out of our sins, to heal us from our sins, to turn back the grip of the evil one, right? Every time we receive the Holy Eucharist, which Jesus explicitly says, this is my body given for you so that sins may be forgiven, that we might be protected from death. This whole plan then is to create this infinite act of love which will be the source of reconciliation, the source of healing, the source of breaking the grip of the devil forever. And he's going to pay the price, pay off the entire penalty for the entire human race in the past, all the way through the future. He's going to do it. And then finally, the psalmist says, and he will do it. All of a sudden, checkmate. The evil spirit knows it. I've been had I even sowed the seeds of, seeds of my own demise. And so the, the minute, of course, the, the evil spirit, it's too late. Jesus breathes his last. He knows he's going to be raised from the dead. He knows that his church will be instituted through his teaching and through the Holy Spirit that's going to be given. He knows that he will be victorious. It looks for a moment like an ignominious death, that Satan is victorious. 
and Satan hearing the last words of the psalm knows, I just killed myself. He knows now that there is no way he can have any one of us. Jesus has protected us if we throw ourselves upon his mercy, if we receive his sacraments. If we do that, okay, we're going to be saved. All right, I better get going here. So the third thing is, let me just say this, the devil is quite real. I just want to uh, point, uh, point out that, um, uh, that uh, there is a good deal of evidence for this uh, from possessions and so forth uh, that we have. We have very good diaries uh, for uh, this kind of activity. But the main thing to remember is that uh, um, a, a possession or oppression, that's, that's a pretty serious uh, kind of involvement with the evil spirit. Uh, in an oppression, uh, the evil spirit has not possessed uh, the person yet, um, but, um, you know, uh, is around the person so completely uh, that they are capable of oppressing that person, manipulating that person without, you know, actually kind of speaking through them and doing things. Now, a possession, uh, just take note, uh, uh, the devil can never possess your soul. You will always be free to the end. All the devil can do is sort of take over your subconscious, take over your imagination, but not your soul, not your free choice, not your power of cognition. Can't do it. He can suppress it. He can try and kind of come out in front of it. So, uh, you know, uh, in, in a typical possession, right, you'll you know, the voice will change, right, of, of the person. And, and it'll be a lower, ugly, swearing, horrible kind of voice. And furthermore, uh, the temperature in the room will drop. And so, you you know, it will become quite cool, cold uh, in in there. Paranormal activity will begin. A hatred for the church and a hatred for any kind of a relic, a hatred for holy water. All of these things will be very much manifest. But the paranormal activity, you can expect that bottles will be flying through the air or relics through the air. Furniture will be moving around the room without anybody moving it, of course, that the, the, the person themselves will be able to speak in languages like Latin or Aramaic. <laughs> you know, they've never studied a word of in their lives. And they will take a couple of quick instances of, of this. Uh, and of course, uh, in the case of Julia, you know, uh, all kinds of things where the devil can actually, um, you know, in, in a person can get in on a phone call. Uh, you know, so I'm calling... Uh, you and the person who's possessed, not even part of it. And then all of a sudden there's that voice on the line and uh, they're, you know, interfering and working on the phone call, et cetera. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, you can, uh, you have um, on many occasions, uh, people who are literally suspended uh, in, in the, in the air, six uh, inches to a foot right off uh, uh, the bed uh, you know, defying gravity completely, and even five, six, seven people trying to push that guy down on the bed, they, they cannot do it. They're just uh, suspended up there um, in, in the air. Now, when you see these paranormal activities uh, of this sort associated with all kinds of things, evil of, of various kinds, uh, you know uh, that this is not just schizophrenia. Schizophrenia, depression, manic, uh, um, you know, um, uh, manic depressive disorder, um, you know, personality disorders, psychosis, that's not going to explain any paranormal activity, any ability to know languages that you've never been exposed to, 
et cetera, et cetera. But then on top of it, uh, there's also, remember, a person's not possessed all the time. Uh, like in the case of Robbie Mannheim, uh, right, we see that, uh, you know, the person like Robbie uh, actually uh, has uh, um, like, let's say, 70 percent of the time. He's not manifesting uh, the evil spirit. He is just Robbie Mannheim. Now, of course, if you try and say, well, Robbie, how about coming to confession? The eyes roll back. The trance begins. The manifestation starts to happen. The ugly words, the temperature drop, etc. So the idea, though, is Robbie's still free, right? And so the idea then is the, the way to defeat Satan is to get people when they're not in that possessed state of mind, when they're not screaming, or to get them when they're still oppressed or they're still obsessed, right? Lower degrees of, of uh, occupation by Satan uh, to get them in their freedom to go to the sacrament of reconciliation. Absolutely important to get them to go to Holy Communion on a regular basis, because if they've already entered into the life, you, you know, you have to uh, get them uh, to receive those sacraments, to, to use the name of Jesus when, um, you know, the, the, the evil spirit begins to manifest itself, etc. So I'm, I'm doing this very quickly. Sorry, I, I'm trying to get probably too much in uh, to this. But remember, I will finish in part two what I cannot finish in part one. But the main thing uh, here is, uh, well, let's take Robbie Mannheim and you can get the point. How did Robbie, you know, here's a teenager, basically, um, who's living, you know, uh, uh, right after uh, uh, World War II. Uh, he is uh, living in Maryland initially in a little suburb there right outside of Washington, D.C. And um, uh, how did Robbie uh, get into um, you know, the this possession. I mean, did the devil come like in the exorcist movie, sort of seemingly arbitrarily? No. It's explained very clearly that Robbie had a spiritualist aunt, and he was kind of a loner kid. He didn't go around. He didn't have a lot of friends at school. And so he hung around with his aunt, who, whom he trusted. And so um, she suddenly died. But in the meantime, she taught him how to use a Ouija board. She taught him all kinds of little spiritualist occult kinds of things. So when she dies and he's very lonely and wants company, what does he do? Pulls out his Ouija board. And of course, as you know, the planchet on the Ouija board moves without anybody touching it, right? You ask questions, you put your fingers on the board, and the planchet does the moving. Uh, little do you know that you know when you're doing that and the planchet is moving, the evil spirit, you are asking the evil spirit into, you're asking for the power of evil, the power of Satan. You're asking to use that and to get knowledge that you are not intended to have from God. You're asking Satan for that. Now, in the case of Robbie, he was kind of innocent, but nevertheless suffered the consequences, which is why we have to tell people, don't be using tarot cards, don't be using occult methods. Don't be using Ouija board. Don't be playing Charlie Charlie. You're playing not only with fire, you're playing with Satan. And so the idea uh, here is, uh, you know, Robbie basically gets into this. And what does the planchet tell him? Of course, I'm your spiritualist aunt. I'm just here uh, to help you. And I just so very nice to him, you know, feigning that he's that uh, uh, Satan's feigning that he's 
uh, Robbie's aunt, we then know that this thing gets from bad to worse to worse to worse. And finally, of course, Robbie can't even sit in a chair without the chair moving all over the, 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 the room around him. He can't go to a classroom anymore. He's, he's always being, uh, you know, suspended uh, in, in, in the air, you know, and, and so forth. They, they took poor Robbie to a Protestant minister and the Protestant minister, um, you know, tries to um, uh, says, look, I, in a few days, I'll, I'll have it all explained. It, it's just a little bit of psychoanalysis. He'll be fine. Just needs a little bit of love and assurance and confidence. And of course, he's, you know, Robbie, you put him underneath the bed and the whole Robbie goes up and takes the whole bed with him, you know, pressed up against the, the, the bed. And of course, everything's shaking in this poor minister's house. And finally, he goes, uh, calls up the parents of Robbie and says, think you need to take him to the Catholics. Uh, they're the ones that seem to know what's going on here. And of course, he gave up. He didn't want to touch this case as far as you could throw it. But I, I can't go through all the, the dimensions of the case. But Robbie really did have a, a case of very strong possession, uh, seemingly by uh, a very highly placed uh, evil spirit. Uh, you know, in some cases, you know, Satan himself might have been uh, the spirit present. Who knows? Because the devil's always lying. But uh, surely highly placed, very difficult to remove. A bunch of Jesuits, um, uh, um, you know, well, first of all, he, he, you know, the exorcism began with a diocesan priest there in um, uh, Georgetown University Hospital. But then soon they moved it to St. Louis for a variety of reasons. The Jesuits at St. Louis University took over uh, the case. There were four of them that were uh, pretty much uh, the, the, the major figures uh, in the exorcism. Uh, you know, with Father Bishop uh, basically being the one who who wrote the uh, the diary and so forth. So, um, what is the the major point? It took thirty nine separate exorcisms in between all that time. And by the way, paranormal activity. Are you kidding me? It was all over the place. Things were flying around. Whole chests of drawers were going zooming around the rooms in St. Louis. They had to literally put Robbie in a straitjacket. Uh, so that he, he just wouldn't spring out of bed. Of course, uh, you know, he, there he is, you know, suspended in the in the middle of the air, and they just kept right away exercising, exercising. But in between times, they were appealing to Robbie's freedom to make a profession of faith. Of course, the devil is trying to prevent this from happening. But Robbie finally went through with it. He finally then, uh, by the way, the, the book, The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty, that was based on the diary from Father Bishop and the Jesuits. It was based on that diary. I don't know how he got a hold of that diary, uh, but now the entire diary is is printed in, in Thomas Allen's Possessed. And there's, um, so if you're interested in that, you might go to that book, Possessed by Thomas Allen. And the whole diary's there, an explanation of the case, very well footnoted, uh, very uh, interesting. But finally, Robbie does receive Holy Communion, and on Easter Monday, St. Michael appears right above him and casts out Satan. When the, Satan comes out of Robbie, the, it's like a bolt of lightning and thunder and literally goes all the way across to, uh, you know, the, the street into the college church, um, you know, at St. Louis University there, the little church, not a big, big, huge church called the College Church, goes right in the church, turns off all the lights and all these priests who are saying their office and their mass is there at the college church. It was a big deal. Um, uh, is Satan real? Oh, I think he's very real. And uh, now uh, Dr. Richard Gallagher has written, he's a very good psychiatrist there 
uh, has you know his degrees from Yale and Columbia, but also at New, New York University and now New York uh, School of, of Medicine. He um, uh, he has a very good book called Demonic Foes, and in that book, you know, he's a consulting um, um, a psychiatrist uh, for uh, um, I uh, well, we'll just say a northeastern diocese, probably somewhere in New York, and uh, he's um, uh, uh, writes a book. Uh, called Demonic Foes about what he has experienced and what he has learned uh, about what's involved in exorcisms, the manifestation of the evil spirit, etc. Uh, I've got some, um, you know, FAQs here that I just want to briefly take with you. Uh, and I'm, I apologize for kind of the pace here, but um, I just, we, you know, we have to establish very clearly that Satan exists. Now, most of the time, as we shall see in a moment, he doesn't use these tactics of possession and oppression. And the name of Jesus is very powerful. Sacrament of Reconciliation, the Holy Eucharist, are very powerful for protecting you. But he's here, and he's definitely very active. And, and uh, um, uh, let's just uh, quickly go to the FAQs for a second. Uh, the, the first thing, um, uh, you know, is, hey, wait a minute. If Jesus definitively defeated Satan with this unconditional and infinite act of love, if that's Satan's utter and definitive defeat, then how come he's so active today? How come he's been so active in past times in history? Why in the world uh, is he so powerfully uh, manifest and has these periods where he seems to be in, in, in almost complete control of a culture? How, how would this be possible in Jesus' definitive act? Because Jesus' definitive act does not, you know, infringe on our freedom. So we are still free human beings. So the idea is then, because we are free human beings, we can worship Satan, invite Satan in, we can disobey God's laws, we can commit the uh, eight deadly sins with reckless abandon, we can do all kinds of things because we are free. So the idea then is, well, what did Jesus's definitive defeat of Satan do? It created that unconditional and infinite act of love that will be in this world until the end of time. And that unconditional act of love, that unconditional act of compassion and protection has paid off the price for everything we have done if we but avail ourselves of it. Satan has no claim over us. We don't have to pay that price for the absence of that claim. Jesus paid the price to pay off all of Satan's claims for all time. Now, because of that, of course, the sacrament of reconciliation, every time, as I said, the priest absolves a sin, that act of love from the cross that unconditional act of protective and, 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 and absolutely good and self-giving love is rushing out into us. It's not only paying off the penalty for our sins, it is literally breaking Satan's grip in the moment. It is literally healing us and, of course, wiping away all the sins that we have Yes, the act of absolution is there, but the power of the act of absolution is not just Christ sitting up there and going, I'm more powerful than you, Satan, and I'm telling you, 
uh, um, that person's sins are all gone. Jesus makes no arbitrary use of power at all. He pays off the price completely in an unconditional and act of love through an ignominious and perfect self-sacrifice. That was the whole point. He did it legitimately. He did it so that no one could ever say, that was just an arbitrary use of power. No, it wasn't. It was a completely intentional, unconditional, perfect act of unconditional and infinite love. That's what it was. And that, of course, is, uh, you know, so Jesus has defeated Satan. Satan has no power over you. You go to that sacrament of reconciliation, he's defeated. You go and receive the Holy Eucharist, he's defeated. You say, in the name of Jesus Christ, be gone, Satan. You say that three times. You feel like sometimes uh, Satan's kind of tempting you, or you feel like, you know, uh, um, you, know you, you just don't have control over things and, and, and so forth. I'll talk about this in point number three in the slide. But, it, you know, all you have to do is say, in the name of Jesus, be gone, Satan, three times. I have another little prayer that I just say, you know, because uh, Satan always tries to get, you know, to me through my through the my favorite deadly sins, right? So I always just tell the Lord, Lord, this is my weakness. So after telling Satan to be gone, I just simply say, Lord, this is my weakness. Lord, this is my weakness. But notice when you just say this is your weakness and you're calling upon the Lord, all he, it just breaks his spell. So if greed is your deadly sin, right? You know what I mean? Uh, he can't, Satan can't withstand it, right? I mean, he's, he's trying to get you to fix on that sin and to fix on him and to fix on resisting that sin. All you got to do is in all humility, just say, Lord, this is my weakness. You don't even have to say, help me. If I say, Lord, this is my weakness about three times, spell's broken. He can't transfix me whether I'm angry, right? Whether I'm um, um, greedy, whether I'm lustful, whether I'm uh, proud, whether I'm vain, whether I'm envious, it doesn't matter. A minute I start saying that, Lord, this is my weakness. This is my weakness. I'm giving myself over to the Lord. I've got my focus on him. I have my focus on my vulnerability and my weakness. I'm not depending on myself or my strength. Enough said. But the point is, in the name of Jesus is very powerful, and you can just use that. Uh, even if you feel like sometimes uh, Satan's, you know, zip, zipping around the corner, just say, in the name of Jesus, be gone, Satan. You feel like you've entered into a domain, you know, just say, in the name of Jesus, be gone, Satan. I remember once I was debating a guy on, um, uh, well, actually on the Today Show, was on assisted suicide, and this guy was a medical doctor, and this doctor uh, you know, was basically, you know, he came over to me and he pointed, you know, his finger into my chest and he said, hey, you're going first. I said, how can I go first? I said, uh, I'm against your position and you got to elucidate your position so I can be against it. So you got to go first. And he goes, no, he says, if you don't go first, then I'm out of here. And I didn't want to lose that you know, nice appointment, on, um, um, you know, with the Today Show. Uh, the television, you know, on this assisted suicide thing. So I said, okay, I'll go first. But boy, I could feel, I could absolutely feel, like this guy scares me. There's an emptiness here. There's a, a, an alienation here. There is a dread here. There's something here that just is scary. 
And so I just start saying, in the name of Jesus Christ, be gone, Satan. In the name of Jesus Christ, be gone, Satan. And then all of a sudden, I just got this inspiration from the Holy Spirit, but I don't have time to tell the story right now. But the, I mean, I, I just kind of had this insight in how to defeat him in the first five seconds. And so I said, okay, I've been asked to go first and I'm against it. So here's what I'm going to say. Uh, this debate is not all about dying with dignity. This debate is not about having the freedom to turn off unwanted, extraordinary means and machines that you do not want and so forth and so on. This debate is not about this. This debate is not. The guy was totally exasperated. He looks up at me and goes, I've never heard this before. And I said, that's because you haven't been listening. Normally, I'm not that witty. But the entire crowd, there's like a thousand people in this auditorium, all started laughing. Right. And of course, I had them. And of course, my Dutch relatives who were watching it in Holland, the, the Today Show, I guess, aired in Holland or something. But anyway, they called up my mother and they said, we have seen Bobby and he has done well. And Holy Spirit, power of the name of Jesus. This is what I'm saying. When at first, you know, you feel that sense of dread and that kind of horror and that emptiness, right? You feel it and you get, you get scared. Jesus is there. Jesus's name is powerful. And then ask for the Holy Spirit. Boom, there's the counterattack. Okay, just going to a second um, most asked question, um, uh, you know, a, a pretty clearly, you know, might ask why would the Lord allow a horrible thing like possession or oppression to a, a teenage kid like Robbie who almost seemed to get innocently into it? We just have to remember one thing. If you use occult means and ask for occult power and ask for occult knowledge, you are inviting Satan into you. That's the normal path through which Satan moves into this extraordinary way of doing things. So um, just remember, uh, counsel, no Charlie, Charlie, you know, tarot cards, you know, et cetera. I, I mean, no, I, I know I'm speaking to the choir here, but counsel your kids how important Ouija boards are horrible, deadly things. How do we protect ourselves from Satan? I've already given you the name of Jesus is really important, as we'll talk about later. The Eucharist is very important. The sacrament of reconciliation is very important. And of course, the you know ways of breaking the spell of Satan, that little prayer, Lord, this is my weakness. Lord, this is my weakness. And just it breaks everything apart. You don't have to exert power. You don't have to try and push back the temptation. Just say that prayer, I'm telling you. And it works for me anyway. And I don't know why it would work for me if it wouldn't work for you. Well, anyway, I'm going to skip the other two questions. Uh, got to move on um, to a really important topic, which is the normal ways in which uh, so this, we're now on to chapter four, uh, by the way, of that book, Christ versus Satan, Our Daily Lives. In chapter four, we now get to the normal tactics of Satan. And of course, everybody knows what those tactics are. Temptation is the number one tactic. Deceit is the number two tactic, the number three tactic, and the ultimate tactic is discouragement and his favorite despair. So the idea there um, is, oh, well, let's go through just a very, very quickly uh, some thoughts about temptation. Every single solitary saint says this. They say basically that if you are feeling temptation, the more quickly you nip it in the bud, the more quickly you um, resist it. And like I said, you don't have to resist it by saying, you know, no. 
or, you know, pushing back or, you know, I just, Lord, help me, you know, resist this. And, you know, don't, I don't want to think about this and don't let them get me. Don't do that. Just say, Lord, this is my weakness. Be humble, be weak in my weakness is my strength. Just go back, use the name of Jesus, say, Lord, this is my weakness. Lord, this is my weakness. Bingo, bango, right? Um, all of a sudden, that humility and that reliance on Jesus, and then just putting ourselves into his hand, and that sort of passive resistance, it just has his power to, to break the spell. Okay, so the, the idea is nip it in the bud fast. If you nip it in the bud fast, the imagination can't get um, you know engaged. And if the imagination can't get engaged, emotions will not get engaged. If emotions don't get engaged, remember, it's emotions that translate thoughts into actions. So actions won't get engaged. So the quicker we get, you know, resistance by this, uh, what I would say would be the humble prayer, this is my weakness. Um, If we resist, then uh, quickly, no imagination, no um, um, uh, engagement of the emotions and no movement from thought into action. Okay, a second really important thing too uh, about temptations is there's a, you know, the, the eight deadly sins, you know, the, 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 and we'll talk about this in part two a whole lot. But in the eight deadly sins, just remember this the devil is always going to emphasize the deadly sin that you are most vulnerable to. He may not do it in the order, right? So let's say if, uh, if I have um, a real um, a weakness in the area of anger or pride or vanity, maybe in that order. He may not use that order. He may shuffle it. And sometimes you'll bring in one out of the blue that, you know, hasn't been a problem for a while, but now he can get you because you're, you're working on these three and you're, you know, he got, can blindside you like a rolling shoulder block, right? So the idea, though, is, is that uh, he's, he's very crafty, but normally he's going to work on the things to which you're more vulnerable. Remember the words of St. Ignatius of Loyola. And those words, right, remember, you know, the, the devil is like an enemy commander. He parks there in front of the, your fortress. And he looks around for the weakest point. And then when he locates it, there he will try to muster all of his forces and focus on that and take you by storm. So the idea then is you've got to know yourself. You have to know which are the deadly sins to which you're most vulnerable. Prioritize those sins in your exam and prayer. Won't get to the exam prayer today. We'll get to it tomorrow. I mean, uh, uh, in the next lecture. So the idea then right now is, you know, um, uh, the devil is going to come with temptations. He wants you to engage. He's going to use the temptation to which you're most vulnerable. And then he's going to customize some rationalizations that are just for you. It's okay. Everybody's proud out there. Everybody's looking at pornography out there. I mean, it's a victimless sin. Could do the Gordon Gecko thing, right? Hey, you know, a greed gentleman, for lack of a better term, is good. And, and I don't know if you ever saw that uh, movie. They did have some, um, you know, adult material of the, you know, a lot of language. I was not, you know, 
um, that in other senses, but it, um, uh, but it was called the, the you know the devil's advocate uh, with Al Pacino there. I mean, oh my gosh, <laughs> one of the best portrayals of Satan. Whoever wrote that book uh, got into the mind, uh, right into Jesus's mind. It knew Satan inside and out. But the point that is clear is always there will be rationalization. Always there will be right after the engagement of the imagination. He's always providing, don't worry about it. Everybody's doing it. Don't worry about it. There's always a don't worry about it. There's always a rationalization. And it's the kind of rationalization that you suffer for the most. He, he custom designs it. So enough said. All right, let's go to the second area here. The second major tactic, of course, is deceit. And he's got all kinds of lies um, that he uses. Of course, uh, uh, one kind of lie, um, you know, uh, is the typical lie of commission, you know, where black is white and white is black, you know. And, of course, he will try and convince you, uh, you know, of uh, these kinds of of uh, things, but he, the devil uses an awful lot of lies of um, omission, right? So the, uh, you know, he, he basically gives you some truths, but he doesn't give you the whole truth. So he's basically, um, um, you know, going to uh, make a convincing argument, missing one or two major pieces of the puzzle which seems to look like, yeah, I guess the Lord really doesn't care uh, about this. Or he might say, oh, look, here's the parable of the prodigal son's father, right? And uh, the father of the prodigal son is very, very compassionate. And therefore, um, and, and the, that's true. I mean, Jesus's definitive revelation of who God is, is right there in that parable of the prodigal son. God the Father is that compassionate and forgiving. But what the devil's going to leave out is he's, you know, he's going to twist Jesus's parable so that he says, you see, the lesson of this parable is not just about the unconditional love of the Father. That the parable is certainly about the unconditional love of the Father and his unconditional forgiveness. But he's also going to slide in some things, right? Like uh, something like, um, you know, I mean, you can do just about anything you want because look, God is unconditionally loving and forgiving. So, I mean, go ahead, send to your heart's delight. No problem there. What he's not going to tell you is as you're sinning to your heart's delight, you're growing more and more distant from God. As you grow more and more distant from God, you're more and more distant from the sacraments and from the church and from Jesus's teaching. The further you get down the road to perdition, right, the further he pulls you and seduces you and gets you down there, the road to perdition, then, of course, it gets much harder to turn back. It gets much harder to realize your, your mistake until it's almost, it's never too late, but it can be very much close to almost too late, right, where you're getting to that point where it is so hard to turn around, so hard to recognize your mistake, so much You've bought in so much of the devil's lies. You're spouting them back at the very church and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Blessed Virgin Mary, who's trying to help you. You're spouting back the culture's lies. And so with all this uh, being said, right, you can pretty much see that um, um, he's 
taken this most beautiful piece of good news and he twists it around, forgetting some really important details. And then he leads you right into the old Chestertonian adage that every heresy is merely an exaggeration of the truth. So he tries to get you uh, in, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, into this book. So he's a sophisticated liar, and and of course the the final lie is always his best trump card lie is to lie about God. You see, you know, you know, I, I used the parable of the prodigal son, but the devil will normally try to imitate the voice of God as being the parable, uh, you know of the non-prodigal son's father, right? So in other words, he's going to try and convince you that God is cruel, that God is hateful, that God is disgusted with you, that God doesn't care about you, that God is stoically indifferent to you. So that's his, why does he want to do it? Because he wants you to run from God, to fear God, not to turn to God. So whatever you do, don't listen to that lie. See, if you've got the parable of the prodigal son out there, right, if you are, um, you know, uh, sensitive to that, then um, you're going to say, wait a minute, the cruel God doesn't correspond to the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus is definitive revelation of who God the father is. You're going to say, wait a minute here. Um, you know, the, uh, um, uh, the payback God doesn't correspond uh, to uh, the, the, you know, the God. Um, you know, father of the parables uh, uh, in the parable of prodigal son, because, you know, the father has no interest in paying back his son, getting retribution, right? Hey, wait a minute here. Uh, you know, the stoically indifferent God, you know, you little wimp, you disgust me. You know, all, all I can tell you right now is I, I, I could care less about you. Buck up and get tough, buttercup. And, you know, that's what I want out of you. I want a good stoic, hard granite face. That's God speaking. It's not God speaking. That's, you know, God doesn't want us to have stony heart. He wants us to have you know, granite faces. He doesn't want us to become Nietzschean. He doesn't want us to be uttering, what does not cure me makes me stronger at every minute. He wants tender, compassionate, loving, trusting hearts. They're going to come back to God in, in trust uh, of him in every moment of our existence. The same thing with the disgusted God you know, the indifferent God, you get the point, you know, the idea that God could be sitting up there going Spitzer, hmm, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, hell for Spitzer, and then be saying it indifferently, right? I mean, it's just absurd if you look at the parable of the prodigal son's father. So the idea then is we got to be crafty and knowing when we start hearing this stuff and start believing in the cruel God that has got sick God, you know, the indifferent God, the God who wants to be stoic, hard faith, granite faced Nietzscheans, and so forth and so on. We've got to know the, this baloney. Okay, one last deceit, and then I'm going to have to wind up. Don't worry, I'm going to finish up uh, these other things um, in my next talk. But the main thing I want to finish up with now is this idea of discouragement and despair. Because that last lie that I was just talking about, that's the one where the God is cruel and disgusted and um, hates you and, um, you know, is indifferent to you and could care less whether you go to heaven or hell, etc. That leads to discouragement. This is what the evil spirit wants 
more than anything else. If he can turn you on this, uh, on, on your notion of God, then who are you going to turn back to? Who can you rely on? I mean, going back to the church, you know, you, you've got to go back to the church and the sacrament of reconciliation, knowing that this is the sacrament of compassion. It's the sacrament of God's mercy. You're not going to be hit in the face by God. You're going to be healed by him. He wants to protect you from Satan. Now, once he's craftily gotten you into the these myths about God, the payback, God, who God, once he's got you there, now watch how he works. He combines the um, temptation part with the um, deceit part. So he comes on in the first moment and he goes, okay, Spitzer, uh, you're greedy, right? You know, and so here's some really good stuff. You know, and by the way, have you seen the Mercedes, the new Mercedes 500 E-Class with the leather upholstery? Smell that leather upholstery. A ride in that car with the German engineer, et cetera, et cetera. And so he's got me, you know, on the green thing. And by the way, you know, Joe uh, over there, he doesn't have an E-Class. He's got something else that's less significant. I don't know. Is a C-Class better than E-Class? I don't know. But anyway, he's got, uh, he's got something less. And you should, you know... <laughs> You can upstage him and just he's playing on your van. He's playing on your greed. And finally, of course, he starts getting you to do things, to start clipping people, to start jipping people, to start cutting corners, to start lying about yourself, to start manifesting, you know, in grotesque ways, vanity. Been there, done that. Of course, the main thing to notice is when the evil spirit is doing this, he wants to get you to sin and he wants to get you to sin as seriously as you can. Then when he's gotten you to that point, what does he do? He turns and becomes totally different. Because when he's tempting you to sin, he's telling you, hey, you're strong. You're free. You are. You are. You are. And, of course, a little God, a veritable, veritable Messiah under yourself. Hey, Sin, peccator, peccafortitor, you know, sin strongly, you know, and he's out there preaching encouragement and, oh, think about it. When you get this little prize, you're going to be so happy. Then you sin. And then he turns around and he goes, you little wretch, you little weak wretch. You know, the God I've been talking about there, the cruel, hateful, indifferent God. He couldn't possibly love a despicable little bug like you. You've heard this propaganda about being unconditionally loved, beloved in the eyes of God. Forget about that. You are worthless, and God knows it, and he just thinks you're a little bug. Get out of here, bug. Now, of course, if you're hearing that voice and you are sinking into the mode of discouragement, right? And you're thinking to yourself, oh, my gosh, you know, where can I turn? You know, I'm hated by God. I'm hated by the church. It's all myth. It's all a myth. But the point is, he's trying to get you to that point of despair. And if he does and you lose hope, you're going to get checkmated. You could do something radical, not you. I mean, I know I'm preaching the choir here, but I mean, the main point that I'm trying to get to is, you know, he's got that control and it's a really major kind of control. Okay, those are his tactics, but we're not alone. And in my next talk in part two, I'm going to be talking about 
remedies. I got to talk a little bit about discernment of spirits in the next talk. Uh, then I got to talk a little bit about how Satan is working in the culture. But then we'll talk about the deadly sins in particular, and we'll talk about remedies. How do we stay away uh, from the um, from the devil? But just for the meantime, between parts one and two, just remember, what are your remedies? The sacrament of reconciliation, number one in importance. So the Holy Eucharist as frequently as possible, number two in importance. Sticking closely, even if you're not being perfectly obedient, stick closely with the teaching of Jesus. Do not deny the truth that is in Scripture or the truth of Jesus' words interpreted by the church. If you stick with it and say, that's the truth, that's what I want, maybe if you're imperfect uh, in, in obedience to it, don't let that be a cause for starting to rationalize it off and go, that couldn't be wrong. The church is completely mistaken. We'll talk about that in the next lecture. But once you do those things, remember the power of the name of Jesus. Remember that little temptation prayer. Lord, this is my weakness, right? Just using that very soft prayer where, you know, you, you acknowledge your vulnerability. You acknowledge your weakness. You acknowledge your need for Jesus Christ. Breaking the spell um, of resistance. You don't have to do it on your own. Holy Spirit and Jesus are working through you. We'll talk about all those remedies a little more detail in the next lecture. So thank you very, very much. I, I'm sorry I went over time. Just want to make sure um, that you heard those items uh, before the next lecture. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. All right, Father Spitzer, are you ready for questions? I am. Okay, wonderful. And I actually saw Ruth. Would you want to unmute yourself and ask your question of Father Spitzer? Sure, thank you. Father, thank you so much for keeping me sane through all of the many years. I've oh, learned okay. so much from you and I'm absolutely thrilled. I can't even tell you. Um, when you hear people like the Long Island Medium, you know, Teresa Caputo and uh, John Edwards and all these people that have, you know, rosaries hanging and statues of Our Lady, how do you best, other than quoting a scripture, or maybe that would be the best way. Tell people, this is not really good. It's really not helping people, even though the message might be warm and fuzzy, you know, from the departed people that they speak to. Yeah, well, first of all, you sh shouldn't be um, speaking with departed people uh, unless it's by way of just a short phrase. Like uh, sometimes, you know, I have a little image of my mother who always used to wear a carnation in her hair. And sometimes, honestly, I'll just be uh, dreaming and boom, that little image of my mom will just come into my mind's eye in my dream. And, uh, you know, I'll look at it and I'll just say, well, mom, love you, see you soon, you know? And that's what I'll say. I don't try and engage anything. I don't try and ask any questions. Whatever you do, just don't ask questions. Don't try and commune with uh, deceased individuals, you know, of course, you can always commune with the saints and angels. Uh, you have to be very, very careful uh, when you try to, you know, listen for a response. I didn't get into the rules for the discernment of spirits today. And so next week, I'll have to, um, I will get into it. But the, those rules, you have to really look at them. But by and large, uh, I would not uh, be communing um, with the dead. Of course, with the Blessed Virgin Mary, I'm very, very close uh, to her. And of course, I, 
I um, sometimes don't really even have to talk. All I need to do is just say, I know you are here and I love you very much. And I just enjoy her presence, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, and so you, you don't have to go to any extremes. You don't have to do um, uh, things, but you can, you know, of course, tell a, a loved one that you might see, um, you know, that uh, you love them. And uh, that's that. Don't ask questions. Don't start any dialogues. Don't do that. That's the devil's business. And the other thing that I will tell you, too, is sometimes you will see maybe somebody you loved and they will look very macabre or something horrible. And you think to yourself, oh, my gosh, perhaps this friend of mine is in hell or something. Please do not believe any image that you sort of, uh, you know, comes popping into your mind or anything else. So manipulable by the evil spirit. Of course, he wants to discourage you. Of course, he wants to give you some sign of the hopelessness of a friend of yours, et cetera, et cetera, or maybe your parents or whomever. So, um, uh, you know, my, my one thought would be, uh, you know, don't, don't commune uh, with, uh, um, you know, the, uh, the dead. And certainly when it comes to the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, or to the saints and so forth, of course, prayers to them are, are truly remarkable and trying to imitate them in their sanctity and just enjoying them in their loving and really deeply good, you know, um, presence, which of course is always, you know, when we're in contact with, they're calling us to become better and better. So that's how we know they are who they say they are. And if you are tempted uh, not to be better and better, but just to be footloose and fancy free and, you know, carefree, uh, I would be very careful about that uh, image, as it were, of the Blessed Virgin Mary or the saint, because that's not the, that's not who they really are. Great. Thank you. This next question is coming in from Chester, and he's just asking sort of for a clarification of something you suggested, um, more specifically the prayer, in, in the name of Jesus, be gone Satan. He's asking, as I understand church teaching, we should not directly address devils or demons. Is your prayer directly addressing them? And is Chester understanding church teaching correctly? How can you um, kind of clarify that? Well, um, you know, um, in, in my view, um, you know, Jesus gave us his name uh, to use. So uh, you're not addressing God. You are using the name of Jesus to, you know, push him back. And does that work in my life? Absolutely, it works in my life. Have I seen it work in a, you know, in deliverance ministry? Absolutely, I've seen it work in deliverance ministry. The name of Jesus is so powerful. I mean, uh, I mean, it just, it's repulsive to an evil spirit. And so, um, you know, I wouldn't look at it in terms of an address like you are, uh, uh, you know, telling the evil spirit something or, uh, you know, um, um, you know, you're, you're just giving him a command to go away. And you can always, always, always give the command to go away in the name of Jesus. Yeah. I mean, that's precisely what you want to do. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, we have a few questions coming in about the slides that we were showing through the lecture. So uh -huh. I will make those available if that's all right with you, Father oh, Spitzer. Absolutely. Yeah. Share away. Great. Yeah. So those will be posted on the website uh, sometime tomorrow. 
We're having a few questions come in about the um, prevalence of demonic activity. So Christopher is asking about the current apparent prevalence of satanic activity. Is that in part due to the increase in atheism or people um, having no faith? Um, another person was asking, is that true that there's an increased demonic activity um, or or was it perhaps more prevalent at the time of Christ because you see him uh, yeah. doing exorcisms and stuff so frequently? Yeah, well, today uh, you are correct. I didn't quite get to this point, but uh, yes, there is a big increase in demonic activity today uh, on all levels. So infestations basically means the haunting of a house by not just a ghost, but an evil spirit. Uh, certainly, um, uh, you know, obsessions definitely are in the uh, oppression and possession. Um, I mean, I, you know, Pope Francis has asked that every single diocese have an exorcist now, and they are quite busy, uh, I assure you. And if you just have a, a sense of, you know, um, if you want to read about it, honestly, Dr. Richard Gallagher's book, Demonic Foes, give you maybe a, a shockingly real idea of that. But the, uh, the main point um, that I would uh, say is this. Um, in my part two lecture next week, I am going to talk about the evil spirit's presence in the culture. And you suggested that one of the reasons might be atheism. It is. I mean, the devil has created a very false dichotomy between science and faith and between reason and faith. And of course, this is really going to undermine the contemporary culture that does put a good deal of its of its quote unquote faith in science, but we don't have to, you know, if you don't buy the false dichotomy, and by the way, there's more evidence for God today than ever before. And if you really look at the statistics, right, the Pew survey did this comprehensive survey of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Today, 51% of scientists are declared theists. Uh, 21% are agnostics and 20% are atheists. If you just look at the, the, the news, you'd say, well, that's got to be the opposite. But here's the important point of among young scientists, 40 and 40 years of age and under, 66%, that's a super majority, a super majority of young scientists declare themselves to be theists, that is to say, believers in God. Um, or a transcendent higher power, while only about um, uh, whatever it is, thirteen uh, percent declare themselves to be um, uh, agnostic, and twelve percent or something declare themselves to be atheist. So that uh, you know, look at this lie. But this lie is that's why I started the Bonjus Institute. To be honest, they couldn't take it anymore. I just started. I had to start presenting the evidence for God from contemporary science and physics. Because the evidence is so prolific, yet at the same time, um, you know, the, everybody believes the opposite. Um, and that's part of the culture deal. And I'll, I'll have to talk about that later. But in addition to the atheism thing, there's a redefinition of happiness and ego comparative happiness, which I didn't get into tonight. Who's achieving more? Who's achieving less? Who's got more power, less power, more intelligence, less intelligence, et cetera. All these kinds of comparisons that you know, enhance the ego or can uh, obviously be very debilitating. Um, this has become the dominant view of happiness in our culture. And because of that, we are becoming truly a narcissistic culture. I mean, and, and Facebook and Instagram, you know, TikTok, it's all exacerbating this stuff. I mean, level two is out of control. 
And as it gets out of control, you can see that the separation that level four, which is faith, you know, your purpose in life is like, and happiness are identified with your faith in God, your relationship with God, that is diminishing. So um, that's, a, you know, another tactic that's going on that's leading to it. But I think um, more than anything else that's going on, there are two other major factors. People say, well, you say abortion is a major factor. I think abortion is the sacrament of the devil, uh, you know, quote unquote, and scare quotes. And I do, because I think it just opens up the whole, you know, door. You, you, you take a sacred little eternity and you just butcher that eternity and you do it saying that you are doing a good black is white, white is black. I mean, there's so much deception in the culture of death. It's just so it's not just the culture of unbelief. It's the culture of death. And it is also the culture of narcissism. It's all three. And the devil has done a really good job. The culture of death is manifest now, not just with abortion, but, you know, Peter Singer and his attempts to, you know, you know, with his favorite senators to get infanticide off the ground. you got to be kidding. You have, a, a you know, the governor of, of Virginia. Uh, I don't have to tell you, you know, sitting there advocating, uh, letting a, a human being uh, die who, who doesn't have to die. Right. Uh, just let him die because he's inferior. Uh, you can see it in assisted suicide legislation right and left. I've been on the front for, uh, on this thing for a long time. But I tell you what's going on with the culture uh, of death, you know, abortion, assisted suicide, infanticide, all these things. That is part of the plan. Um, for undermining our sense of the sacred, undermining our relationship with God. And, and of course, losing hope is always part of it. The culture of unbelief, you know, as I said, the false dichotomy between faith and science, faith and reason, et cetera, et cetera. All kinds of ways of undermining, you know, uh, um, belief and making a culture of unbelief. And then the culture um, uh, of narcissism, right? Level two, who's achieving more resilience? I'm, I'm the most powerful. I'm the smartest guy. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. All these things, you combine those three things. Which, by the way, these are well-used terms in the secular culture: culture of death, culture of unbelief, uh, culture of uh, narcissism. It's you know Christopher Lash, a former Marxist, right, using uh, culture of narcissism. So the point that I'm trying to get to is: oh, the devil's done really good homework, and that leads right. So when people start playing and toying with the occult, playing and toying with death as if death could be something toyed with, uh, you know, in the, in the eyes of God, or uh, thinking that somehow they can pray to Satan for extra power and that there's nothing horribly sinful, terribly contrary to one's whole nature and soul. I mean, how can you possibly believe this? A lot of kids do today because they live in a culture of death, culture of unbelief, and culture of um, narcissism, and uh, the devil has done his prep work, and that's our job. we got to turn it around we got to turn around the myths. Uh, that's what we do at the Maja Center. That's why we prepare all these curricula. We have a whole new moral apologetics curriculum that's coming out, too, with Sophia Institute for Teachers. So Sophia Institute for Teachers is preparing our um, uh, our curriculum for um, Apologetics One. That's the evidence for God, uh, scientific evidence for God, from uh, for God, the soul, and Jesus. Um, and uh, the second one uh, for senior year, uh, semester two, is Apologetics Two. That's uh, moral apologetics. You know, why are the church's teachings always going to lead to emotional health, relational health, marital health, and spiritual health? And why do departures 
from you know the church's teaching on gay lifestyle, transgenderism, et cetera. Why does this lead away from that? And that gets into a whole book, uh, the third book of the trilogy um, that uh, we're into uh, called um, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, A Defense of Her Controversial Moral Teachings. That'll be coming out with Ignatius Press in um, fall. And also um, there's a whole curriculum from Sophia Institute for Teachers. Get it into your high schools if you can for this moral apologetics. I mean, it really tells you why the church's teaching is Jesus's teaching and makes sense. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. And um, would you be able to close us in prayer, Father Spitzer? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. You protect us. You help us from our mortal enemy. And you call us, too, to challenge him. Challenge him in the lives, in our own lives. Challenge him uh, through your good grace and power and sacraments and church to challenge that evil spirit through um, in the lives of the people around us, our family members, our friends, our, our communities. You, you ask us too, to even get into the fray to challenge him uh, as uh, in our culture and in our society and to stand up for what is right. We ask you, Lord, we just need that courage. We need your Holy Spirit to help us uh, in this challenge. We want to be on the side of turning um, uh, the tide of this ever-increasing um, you know, Satanism is ever increasing, uh, you know, evil within the culture. So please, Lord, bless us and help us. And may Almighty God bless you and give you his Holy Spirit to inspire, guide and protect you unto uh, that good challenge of the cultures of death and narcissism and unbelief in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.